uh, as the deer pants for the water. Some of us know what it's like, that valley heat, right? <laughs> that makes you dry, makes you thirst. Jesus says, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. Praise God for that. Happy Sabbath. It's really good to see you guys. <laughs> um, I see faces that I haven't seen in a while. I see faces that are a little bit uh, tanned from summer sun, sun-kissed maybe. Um, I see some new faces, and I look forward to being able to fellowship with you. And um, I, I just hope that you really enjoy this blessing of the Sabbath. Um, because this is a precious gift, that there is a God who sits on high, and that he longs for relationship with you and I. He sets us, amen, that's right, he sets aside a 24-hour period of sacred time and space so that we can commune with him. And I'm looking forward to that today. Um, you know, we've, we've returned from camp meeting all in one piece, praise the Lord. Um, <clears throat> Debbie was a trooper, carrying sometimes two, sometimes three. Uh, <laughs> sometimes three, and anyways, God is good, God is good. And so it's good to be back with our church family. Uh, today, we're going to kind of start a new focus in, in the messages that we'll look at over the next few weeks. Today's title is Mission Driven God. Mission Driven God. There are times in our experience where maybe you're like me. You get so wrapped up, so caught up. Uh, maybe you start on a vacation or a road trip and you're, you're getting there. You're going. But then all of a sudden, uh, something mechanical goes wrong. Um, you forget your diapers at home. <laughs> you, you know, all of these little details. There's a gripe here. Uh, the back seat is not quiet. Da, 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 you know, all of this kind of stuff. And at some point in the midst of that journey, that trip, that thing that you were all excited about, you kind of, <sighs> why are we doing this anyway? <laughs> Has that ever happened? Maybe it's not a, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's not a vacation. Maybe it's a, a routine that you're used to. You just kind of, you're doing your thing. Maybe it's a career. You're, you're getting it on. You're, you're plugging away. Maybe it's your classes, doing this, doing that. You're moving on. But then at some point, you're like, where am I moving towards anyway? There are times in our experience where we need to refresh and we need to ask ourselves, why am I doing what I'm doing? <laughs> and I think the same is true in a church family. We can get so caught up in going from one program to another. Camp meeting is over. Oh, you know, moving on this, get into this office, that ministry, whatever. And there are times in our experience as a church where we kind of look around and we're like, why are we doing what we're doing? Maybe that's happened. Maybe it doesn't happen. And if that's good, then praise the Lord. But I still think that there are times as a church family where we need to refresh in our experience, to pinpoint why what we're going for. There is a very simple statement in the book, Education. It says, true success in any line demands, does anybody know this? True success in any line, it demands definite aim. Think about that. True success in any line demands definite aim. You may be carrying that axe. You may be swinging it at that tree. But if you're not pinpoint focused on one spot, you're going to be ninja, you know, whatever, all over that tree, but you're not going to get that tree down. Why? Because you don't have definite aim. True success in any line demands definite aim, and I think the same could be said of a church. So what are we doing? What we're, why are we doing what we're doing? This is, this is what I want us to consider over the next few weeks, just to refresh. Why is it that we exist as a church? And before we even do that, we need to consider why is it that God 
is doing what he is doing. And so that's what this message is about, mission-driven God. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, we ask that as we open up your word, you would give us a glimpse of you. We're asking, Father, that we would see more than just ink on paper, but that we would see the living God who has a love for us. I pray, Father, that we would open these pages with a sacred sense of humility, eager anticipation, and expectation to actually hear from the living God. Father, please let this word become life to us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. Amen. Would you take your Bible with me and go to the Gospel of John? This is where we're going to start our study, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. This is the fourth book of the New Testament. If you didn't bring a Bible, there may be a Bible there in front of you, in the pew in front of you. John chapter 1. The Gospel of John, it's the fourth Gospel of the New Testament. These, these biographies of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were all written around the same time. And they're actually called the synoptic Gospels. That means they're, they're looking through one lens, one syn, synoptic. Uh, they're, they're looking through one perspective but the Gospel of John is, is often seen as a unique Gospel. It's actually written about 30 or 40 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been published and distributed. The Gospel of John is written by, guess who? John, all right? John the Apostle, the same one who received the visions of the book of Revelation. This guy, he was the last living Apostle, the last of the twelve. People tried to kill him. The Roman Empire tried to kill him. They tried to put him in a pot of boiling oil. They they failed. Did you know that? They tried to, to kill this guy, but they couldn't. And so they said, well, let's just put him on an island somewhere <laughs> and hope that he kind of peters out. And this is, this is the Gospel of John written by the Apostle John. And it's very interesting because John, as the last living apostle, he's, he's the one, the last man standing, so to speak. And there are believers, there are churches all over the place that have been raised up. And there are people who are wondering what's going to happen when the last of the twelve die. This is a critical juncture in the history of the early church where they're kind of wondering, well, we, once John goes, what, what happens with the faith? It's a critical juncture because they're wondering if they are going to lose touch from the original experience. So there's this second generation, and they need the assurance that their quote-unquote distance from Jesus is not a barrier from Jesus. Do you understand what I mean by that? They're wondering, okay, wait, after John goes, none of us have actually been around when Jesus was walking and talking. Is that going to mean that, that this faith is no longer any good? And the Gospel of John is written for that kind of audience. And maybe as you kind of remember the stories that are only in the Gospel of John, you think about the ways in which John, um, Jesus is depicted doing miracles all over the place. While Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they point to Jesus touching people, Never once in the Gospel of John is one of Jesus' miracles involving touch. It's all uh, through faith. It's all by his word. And so this second generation, they needed the assurance that even though I'm not there, even though I, I didn't see him and, and talk to him myself, I can still have faith in Jesus. So John is writing this Gospel to a second generation that needed that kind of assurance and they also needed reminders. They needed pointers to how God could actually overcome this distance barrier. How God would actually work 
to restore relationships, even though he's not personally present. So these are the things that, that John is writing for. And in John chapter 1, or if you're there, go ahead and say amen. In John chapter 1, we are going to find two glimpses today. Maybe there are more that you see along the way, but today we're going to focus on two glimpses, two glimpses of God. We're just going to look at John chapter 1. We'll focus mostly from verses 1 through 18, maybe picking from a, a few other places there. But in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, notice how John just kind of lays out this, this uh, absolute picture of who God is. John chapter 1, verse 1, reading from the New King James, the Bible says, In the beginning. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> John is almost saying, hey, this, this is the new story. Okay, in the beginning was who? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Let me just stop right here. The first glimpse of God is a God of relationship. If you're taking notes, go ahead and write that down. The first glimpse of God is a God of relationship. Do you realize that in, uh, the last time we saw in the beginning... You know, Genesis chapter 1, we, we see a God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there could be a temptation to see God as a doer. And yes, he is. God is a doer. But in the Gospel of John, the first glimpse that we see is that God is a God of relationship. Before God does anything in this Gospel, he is enjoying relationship. Do you see that? Yes or no? He is enjoying relationship. In other words, before any description of what he does is a description of the relationship he enjoys. All that God does then, thereafter, as it's recorded in the Gospel of John, all that God does, whether it's creating, whether it's shining light, whether it's leading people here or there, all that God, God does thereafter is not the end in and of itself. The relationship is. Do you follow that today, yes or no? Yeah? God is a God of relationship. So when we talk about mission-driven God, you know, when we talk about being mission-driven, it can, it can easily sound very task-oriented. You know what I mean? It can easily sound like we're, it's all practical, pragmatic talk. But really, when we're talking about God's drive, God's mission, it's a drive not just to do, but his drive to do is fueled by his passion to be with. This is a God of relationship. And so the story continues. John chapter 1. He was in the beginning with God. That's verse 2. And then in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So here is this God, this God of relationship, and he is wanting to extend himself using the metaphor of light. This light is shining, and it says that the darkness, the darkness cannot, my Bible says, comprehend it. Does anybody else's translation say something different? Maybe you have, the darkness could not overcome it extinguish it. Okay, so even though this light is extending himself, it is not necessarily met with warm reception. 
There are times in which God extends himself. He is such a God of relationship. He is never holding back. But the truth that John is pointing out is that sometimes humanity holds back. God never holds back. He is taking the first steps. God is the one who is shining light into the darkness. And it says in verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now this is a different John than the one who's actually writing the book. This is John the Baptist, okay? His name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. And we'll come back to that, that dynamic in just a little bit. But notice how this light is active in the world that does not necessarily receive it. Verse 8, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to how many? Amen. Amen. God did not just come for you. He came for me too. God is so much into you that he will do whatever it takes to reach you. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. And in verse 10 it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. How tragic. And in verse 11 it says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Yet God is still coming. Even though his own, that which he created, is not even receiving him, Uh, God still extends himself. But praise the Lord that this sense of rejection is not the end of that, that narrative. Notice what verse 12 says. But as many as received him. So there are some. There are some that received Jesus. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of who? But born of God. And it's not denying the human birth. It's saying that that human birth does not have the defining identity on them. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Humanity's rejection of the light is not the end of the story. It's not the the, the last chapter of the narrative. The relationship that God prioritizes doesn't have to be one-sided, him just reaching out. No, there are some who receive. There are some who receive. And what's cool about this, verses 12 and 13, when when, uh, biblical scholars have taken a look at John and just kind of seen chapter 1 and its its, uh, intricacies and its structure, they actually see verses 12 and 13 as the very heart, the very heart of the introduction of John. Which means that this picture of relationship that's restored, this picture of rebirth into the family of God, is at the very heart of what God longs for. God longs to restore relationship. This is the center. And I want us just to understand something about this first glimpse of God, that God is a God of of relationship. Before we move on to the second glimpse, I want us to see that there is something very practical that we can take away from this. If God truly is a God of relationship, if that's his priority number one, then at heart, God is a people person. Do you you understand what I mean by that? (laughs) That God is not just about meeting appointments and fulfilling tasks, although he does that. Although, you know, he he does say, hey, uh, I'm going to declare my purpose and I'm going to fulfill all my counsel. God does take action. But beneath all of that, or the bigger picture of all of that, 
that God is not just task-driven. He is not just event-centered. He is relationship-centered. And I, I don't know exactly how to communicate this uh, in a compelling way, but, but just to realize that, that God is not just focused on engaging activity. God is focused on restoring relationship. I think this is huge for me. It's, it's something that I need to be reminded of myself. myself. Because it means that when God moves, when God is on the move to fulfill his mission, he is not just out to get something done. When God moves to fulfill his mission, he is out to pursue a relationship. What this means for me as a follower of God, someone who wants to reflect God, what this means for us as a church that wants to reflect the heart of God, is that if if God moves not just to meet an event or fulfill an appointment, then we ought to move not just to fulfill an event or meet an appointment. Okay, let, let me backtrack a little bit. There is a tendency in my life to only move in mission when there's a program coming on. <laughs> but for God, God is always moving in mission, not because there's an appointment, but because there's a relationship, which means he's always moving. Actually, in John chapter 5, Jesus says it very clearly. My father is always at work, and I'm working with him. Why is God always at work? Is it because his calendar has so many things to do? No, it's because there are people who are always in need of him. And so as a church, if we are to reflect that kind of God, then we ought to always be in motion. We ought to always be moving towards mission, not because there's another thing on the calendar, but because there are relationships all around us that need to be reconciled to God. And I need to remind myself of this because I realize that there's a tendency for me to turn mission on and off depending on what's on the calendar. Am I the only one in this room that I forget? Okay, okay. So here, there's a picture of a God who is mission-driven, not by his calendar, but by his heart for people. If I want to follow that God, then I, then I ought to move, not just when my calendar says so, but because there are relationships all around me who need to be reconciled to God. That's the glimpse number one. This mission-driven God is a God of relationship. Moving on, we see a second glimpse. It's introduced here in verse 14. You're still there. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Bible says, And the Word, that's Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Wow. This possibility of rebirth that's referred to in, in verse 12 and 13, that possibility is made a reality. How? By Jesus' birth. Our hope of rebirth is made possible by Jesus' birth. The Word became flesh and actually dwelt where? Among us. It's a powerful verse. It's, it's depth we could probably spend hours on. The idea of Jesus dwelling with us, it actually comes from the Old Testament concept of putting up a tabernacle. You remember when God told Moses, hey, let them make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. This is a God who is so high and holy, yet he doesn't just say, oh, psh, uh, there's never any contact here. No, he's going to dive deep in, into our human mess, so deeply that he'll take on 
flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And I want us to notice this, that it's only, only when divinity took on humanity that the revelation of Jesus' glory could truly be seen. Did you catch that? Only when divinity takes on humanity could the glory of God truly be seen, full of grace and truth. Why is that important? Because it's only when we really behold him, it's only when we see his glory, that we can receive him, according to verse 12, and be called children of God. So had Jesus not taken on humanity, we would not have a revelation of him, we would therefore have nothing to receive and never be children of God. But because he became flesh and dwelt among us, because divinity united with humanity, we could see, we could receive, we could believe, and become children of God. Praise him. Praise him. There's a significance about this. This verse, verse 14, word became flesh, uh, divinity taking on humanity, it has so much more. It's not just about the nature of Christ. I believe it has something to tell us about the mission of Christ. Let me explain. It's not just about who Jesus is, but how Jesus works. Follow me here. This divine human unity is actually showing us that in order to save souls, divinity partners with humanity. If you're taking notes, go ahead and write it down. In order to save souls, divinity partners with humanity. We've already seen this. In this chapter, we've already seen this. Uh, just a little bit earlier, remember, um, it says in verse 4, in him was life, the light was the light of men. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So here's God, moving in mission, trying to enlighten humanity, but look who he partners with. In verse 6, there was a man sent from God, whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. In other words, here's divine action and here's human cooperation. Divinity partners with humanity in order to seek and save that which is lost. This is huge. In the Gospel of John, you can think of other pointers to this, other evidences of this. Uh, you think of the story of the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that story, right? Did Jesus just go ahead and bust out food for 5,000 people, yes or no? No, he partners with a little lamb. <laughs> he partners with humanity. And even then, he takes that lunch, and then does he, does he individually, does he go up to each of the 5,000 individuals in that crowd? Yes or no? No. Who does he partner with? He partners with his disciples. He gives to the disciples, disciples give to the multitude. Divinity partners with humanity. In the story of Lazarus, you remember that? Lazarus, raised from the dead, Definitely divine activity. Amen? <laughs> All right. Lazarus, he comes to the tomb, and before Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, what does he say? Roll away the stone. Why didn't God just, you know, why didn't he just blow that stone away? Because he's partnering with humanity. When he says, Lazarus, come forth, out hops this new life, and it's still wrapped in grave clothes. And what does Jesus say next? Unwrap him. Why doesn't Jesus just, whew, you know, heavenly zipper, whatever, you know? What? He partners with humanity. 
We'll say it once, we'll say it again. In order to save souls, divinity partners with humanity. This mission-driven God partners with mission-driven humanity. (laughs) And there's other evidences throughout the entire New Testament, just to name a few in the book of Revelation. Something near and dear to the Adventist identity in Revelation chapter 14. You see three angels. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying, Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Here is this heavenly messenger. But how does that message get across to those who dwell on the earth? Through us, amen. (laughs) It's not that that God is skywriting through the angels. No, he's actually using the 144,000 in the book of Revelation, chapter 14. There are people who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And it's through those human instrumentalities that the divine mission is fulfilled. Divinity partners with humanity in order to seek and save the lost. Go with me to another passage. Hold, your, hold a bookmark here, maybe in John chapter 1. But go with me to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is powerful. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul understood this. He wasn't, you know, one of the twelve, yet he carried on this mission. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're writing it down, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. When you're there, go ahead and say, I'm there. I'm there. All right. 2 Corinthians, it's right after 1 Corinthians. If you get to Galatians, Ephesians, etc., you've gone a little bit too far. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Paul is, is writing some really potent material here. Uh, You know, you can glance through verse 17, one of the most awesome promises. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is the historic fact. This is the basic objective truth. Jesus makes us new. Praise him. Amen. This is the divine activity. Yet there is a human partnership here. Notice verse 18. Now, all things are of who? Of God. Okay. In other words, Paul is saying, look, God did this. Only God could do this. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Do you know what it means to be reconciled? To be reconciled, it's a relational term. When there's a, a rift in a relationship, to come back together, that's, that's to reconcile. To, to mend the broken relationship. And so he says, all things are of God who has mended the broken relationship He has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given who? Given us the ministry of reconciliation. What do you mean? Verse 19. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Remember, all God. He did it. He does it. Not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, here it is. Verse 20. Now then... We are ambassadors for Christ. Representatives. We stand on his behalf. How? What do you mean? To do what? Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through who? Through us. 
we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul understood that divinity is always moving in mission, and he is always looking for human partners. <laughs> he is always looking for a way to, to work through people to save people. He uses humanity to reach humanity. This is God's MO, his mode of operation, right? This is the way he, he does it. And it says in verse 21, I don't want to leave this chapter hanging because verse 21 is one of the most powerful gospel nuggets right there. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In order to save souls, divinity partners with humanity. Go back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we started uh, kind of seeing how John the Baptist was exhibit A, so to speak, of this divine human partnership. In John chapter 1, what did, what did John's testimony sound like? In John chapter 1, it says, actually, if you just go a little bit down to verse 19. Verse 19, there's a little bit of an exchange here. People are wondering what John is up to, and he explains it in reference to what God is up to. Verse 19, the Bible says, Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? They're trying to figure this out. And, and John identifies himself in verse 23. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And then down in verse 29, it says that the next day, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said very simply, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John bore witness, and all that witness was, he's the man. <laughs> Behold the Lamb, he takes away the sins of the world. God's redemptive pattern, yes, he is that light that's shining in the darkness, shining to every man, but he actually uses man, he uses humanity to actually reach humanity. And for John the Baptist, that testimony is very simple. Check him out, <laughs> Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And some may ask, why does God do that? Why does the God of the universe partner with such feeble, frail humanity? Why, why does he choose me? Why does he choose you? Why does he do? I mean, for those of us who are, you know, gurus of efficiency, this is definitely not the most effective route to take, right? Why does God actually take these extra steps in order to seek and save the lost? I mean, he's got a whole heavenly host that are fully able to take the gospel around the globe and in a very compelling way, I'd say. Man, if you saw an angel show up and say, hey, this is the way to walk in it, you'd probably walk in it, right? And so, you know, why would God use people to reach people? Maybe some would say, well, because... You know, there's like a, a metaphysical barrier here. I mean, like, if, if we saw God himself, we just wouldn't be able to handle it. And so, yeah, maybe, maybe that's true. God had to come in flesh. 
But I would say that this has less to do with a metaphysical law or a metaphysical barrier, and it has more to do with God's relational priorities. <laughs> that God just loves to meet people where they are. Amen. That's what God does. He loves to meet people where they are. He, at heart, is a giver. Not just a giver of gifts, but a giver of himself. That's the God that we serve. When God gives himself, he is willing Apparently, he's willing to meet people where, where we are. So that's answer number one. Why would God take the extra steps? Well, because that's just who he is. He wants to meet us where we are. Second thing I would say, it's, it's for our benefit. It's actually for our blessing. Uh, let me put it this way. God's priority is to restore his image in us. His priority is to restore his image in us. And if he is the God who just keeps on giving, he wants us to be able to reflect the same. In other words, when God gives us opportunities to partner with him, he is actually giving us a chance to have the image and character of God restored in us. When God gives us the chance to think about someone else's well-being, guess what? We are exercising Christ-like character. When God gives us or opens a door for us to partner with him, uh, we no longer are about seeking our own salvation. We're actually about seeking to give salvation. This is the character of God. And so he restores his image in us by partnering with humanity. And, you know, we see this so pronounced in the, the ministry of John the Baptist. We, we know his testimony. It says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know, next week when we look at it, again, we'll take a look at that more in detail. But John is so, he, he comes to a point of reflecting the character of God so fully that in John chapter 3, verse 30, when people are trying to rouse up pride in him and say, hey, there are more people following Jesus than there are people following you. What's up with that, John? And John says this, in John chapter 3, verse 30, he says, he must increase. I must decrease. This is the impact of partnering with divinity. When we actually join the mission-driven God, we are actually allowing God to restore his character in us so that we're not all about self, but that we give ourselves for the salvation of others. The other thing I would say is, another component of it being a benefit to us, this is actually the best life God could possibly give us. Unselfish service is actually the most joy-filled life there is. Did you know that? If you didn't know it, try it out. <laughs> when Jesus tells that story, the, the, the parable of the talents, remember that? He gives some five, some two, some one. The people who work with the five, the one who works with the five, the one who works with the two, they, they multiply it. And when they come back to the master, the master says, hey, I'm going to give you more responsibility. Here, I'm going to give you more work. I'm going to give you more ministry. And then he says, enter into the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is not just to work for him and then once you've pushed hard, relax on an easy chair and put up your feet and sip some lemonade. No, the joy of the Lord is to unselfishly give yourself for the sake of others. Amen. <laughs> this is the joy of the Lord and this is why the, the ways of this world, the principles of this world will never satisfy your longing for joy. Why? Because the principles of this world are completely ant antithetical, polar opposites to the principle of giving of self. The principle of this world is to consume for self. 
And that's always a dead end when you're seeking true joy. And so Jesus says, hey, partner with me. This is the best life ever. (laughs) God is full well able to reveal his character to the world without us. He is full well able to, to carry on the gospel work without us. Yet in his infinite mercy, divinity partners with humanity. In his infinite mercy, he partners with humanity to display the glory of the God who gives all so that we can have all. He partners with humanity because he is the God who is willing to be lifted up on a cross so that we could be seated on heavenly places. This is the God who is willing to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the God that we can behold ourselves. This is the God that we can point others to behold. This is the beautiful God of relationship and the God who partners with humanity. Are you seeing these glimpses pretty clear in the Gospel of John? Think about the significance, just that line. John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I wonder, I don't know, maybe this is a little bit far of a reach, I wonder if the message of the Bible could be simmered down to that one appeal. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. In all truth, we are called to behold the Lamb of God ourselves because He is our Savior. He is our sin-bearer. He is our only hope. So friends, have you received Him? Have you received him? Verse, uh, excuse me, verse 12, John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right. Maybe your Bible says to them he gave the power. <laughs> to them he gave the right to become children of God, to be defined not by our human principles, but to be defined by a rebirth. We can receive him. That dirty past, that, <laughs> that uh, baggage that you bear, When you receive Jesus, you are a new creation. Behold the Lamb of God. If you haven't beheld him lately, behold him again. Behold the Lamb of God. Receive him. Continue to believe him. And live in the reality that you are a child of the King. And when you respond to that appeal, I I, I would also say that at the same time, we ought honestly and humbly recognize that there are those around us who have yet to hear that appeal. There is a dying world around us who is in desperate need of beholding the Lamb of God. There is a dying world around us who is in desperate need of knowing that there is a God who is a God of relationship that will do all in his power to extend himself for the sake of reconciling them to him. There's a world all around us that needs to behold the Lamb of God. They haven't comprehended the light. Um, In the book, Ministry of Healing, page 143, you know, Ellen White published that book back in 1905. So in her historical frame of reference, she says something very simple. The world needs today what it needed 1900 years ago, a revelation of Jesus Christ. We could say the same. The world needs today what it needed. Well, I guess if we said 1,900 years ago, that would take us to the time of John when he's writing this gospel. But we'll say 2,000 years. The world needs today what it needed 2,000 years ago. 
a revelation of Jesus Christ. And God is willing to give that light. He is that light who is shining to every man, and yet he desires to partner with humanity. And that's why, friends, a couple of years ago, uh, we as a church family, there, there was a group of leaders that, that, that crafted a very simple but profound mission statement, and it's printed every week in your bulletin. Have you seen it? If you haven't seen it, maybe you've gotten, it's one of those things, just kind of develop a blind spot. It's, it's right, it, when you open up the, the bulletin, right there, left page, just above the Sabbath School program. Does anybody know it by heart? It says, our mission is to reveal Jesus Christ to the world now in preparation for his soon return. Why is that our mission? Why? Because there is a world, the world needs today what it needed 2,000 years ago. A revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a world that needs to behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And God longs to partner with humanity. And Parkwood is simply saying, look, why are we doing what we're doing? Because we're partnering with a God of relationship. We're partnering with the God who is doing all he can to extend himself, to reveal himself. And we want to be a part of that. To reveal Jesus Christ to the world now in preparation for his soon return. With this second glimpse of the picture of God, that God is a God who partners with humanity, I think we understand the practical implication there. If God is a God who partners with humanity, then let's say with Isaiah, here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. If the mission-driven God partners with humanity, then in order for his mission to be accomplished, he's looking to you and I to be his partners. God wants to reveal himself through you and I. So here, Two glimpses. God is a God of relationship. God is a God who partners with humanity. The take-home challenge is very simple today. Number one is this. Intentionally behold the Lamb of God. Receive Jesus. Allow your identity to be rewritten. You are not a child of this world when you've received Jesus. You are a child of the King. So receive Jesus today. Receive Jesus every day. Behold the Lamb of God for yourself. That's take-home challenge number one. If you're willing to take that challenge, then say amen. 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 Okay, take-home challenge number two. You ready? <laughs> Get ready to say amen. No. Okay, take-home challenge number two is simply this. Receive Jesus, number one. Reveal Jesus, number two. Reveal him. If you've beheld him, why not allow others to behold him? And here, maybe I'll get a little bit more specific about this. The take-home challenge is this. Will you, if it's your desire to reveal Jesus, will you commit to memory our simple mission statement? Is that something you think you can do this week? Commit it to memory. Our mission is to reveal Jesus Christ to the world now in preparation for his soon return. Go ahead and just try to say it right now, just under your breath. To reveal Jesus Christ to the world now in preparation for his soon return. This isn't just a mind trick. No, 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 no. But this is just something practical. If you really want to reveal, then start deepening your, that impression. Uh, as someone in our Sabbath school class said, expression deepens impression. Amen. Go ahead, start saying it out loud this week. Reveal Jesus Christ to the world now in preparation for his soon return. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to look for opportunities to reveal him. And God is going to give you opportunities to reveal him. 
If this is your desire, friends, to receive Jesus and to reveal Jesus, go ahead and say amen. amen. Praise God. Let me, let's pray together. Father in heaven, it's our desire to behold the Lamb of God. Thank you, Lord, for being the kind of God who will do whatever it takes to redeem me. Thank you, God, for doing whatever it takes to restore relationship. You are a mission-driven God, and we want to fix our eyes upon you so that we can be changed into the same image. Lord, we don't know how, how to do this in and of ourselves. It's only by your power, it's only by your spirit, but we trust that if you truly partner with humanity, you'll let us play on your team. And so, God, uh, we just want to say, um, please, put us in, coach. Just send us in. Thank you, Lord, for this simple message, and I pray that each and every day this week we would experience the power of it. Thank you. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, amen, amen.